Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. Well, how are you doing out there? It is March 2019. Uh, the year is traveling on. I uh, hope you're all doing okay. Out there, we've had a pretty intense week here in New Zealand, uh, when I'm recording this at least. Uh, last week, we, we had the uh, terror attack at the mosques in Christchurch carried out by um, a crazed white supremacist. Resulted in the loss of so many innocent lives and um, among the Muslim community. And it's been devastating just to see and, and hear the stories uh, of those who lost their lives and also the ongoing grief and trauma that you know is going to be carried and experienced in that community for, for many, many years to come. You know, on the other side of that, it's been encouraging to see the way that so many New Zealanders have displayed this, you know, compassionate outpouring of love and of empathy for the Muslim community. And somehow in moments like this, we see the worst, but we also then see the best of, of humanity. Uh, I haven't wanted to say too much about this. As I've really wanted to give space to the voices of those directly impacted by the act of horror itself, you know. But the whole terrible tragedy and some of the more troublesome responses after the fact, especially by some Christians and Christian leaders, um, remind us of the terrible impact of othering of dehumanisation, of the harsh lines we draw between us and them, of the way we can so easily turn others out there somewhere into an objectified other rather than as a fellow human. Maybe as Jesus would put it, as our neighbour. And good spirituality, good religion, should at least be in part about undoing these ways of seeing the world, challenging and equipping us to live with generous and open and compassionate lives with love for one another in all of our diversity. And so that's the kind of spirituality I'm interested in. So in light of all of this, it might seem a bit strange or perhaps maybe a bit heavy to continue on our series on hell, but also in some kind of way, it's it's all connected for me because the beliefs we hold about God and what God is like, as I continually say, have a direct connection to the way we see ourselves and one another and the way we act toward one another, the ethics that shape our engagement in the world. In the last episode, episode 10, we began a little three-part trilogy on the Christian idea of hell. And if you haven't listened to that episode, you might find it helpful to go back and start there first. But the basic gist is that the words that are translated as hell in the Christian New Testament have very little to do with some kind of eternal fiery destination. And instead of the language that Jesus in particular uses to describe our way of being in the world, if we are committed to violence and oppression and objectification and dehumanization and all of those forces, then ultimately we are creating hellish conditions for others. And the result in the long term, Jesus tries to suggest, will be our own self-destruction. That's kind of the warning that Jesus wants to give. And indeed, that's for many of the Jewish people in the first century, that was what unfolded in the destruction of their city uh, and the scattering of their people. So that's where we got to last time, and this time I want to talk more specifically about the notion of life after death, because even though last time we talked a lot about hell, what we didn't end up talking about a lot is life after death, and what Christians believe about this, especially in relation to the idea of some kind of eternal consequences or eternal punishment. Uh, of course, look, the challenge here is to talk about life after death is is inherently speculative, right? Because <laughs> we're all alive. Um the only way you can have this conversation is if you haven't experienced it. So it's all theory to some degree. It's all speculation because it's not kind of a common experience that we can all talk about and compare notes on. 
and different religious perspectives um, now and in the ancient world have had all sorts of ways of thinking about what happens when we die. Obviously, the Christian scriptures, which I've grown up with, make a certain set of claims or suggestions at least, but we're still dealing with theory, aren't we? I mean, it's entirely possible that there is no life after death, I guess. Like, we have to be honest about that. That's And if that comes as like a shock or a surprise to you, well... You can't be 100% sure, right? Um, Maybe this is all there is. I can't tell you for sure. I hope there is. Uh, But there's no way I can guarantee it, no matter how many theology PhDs I do. The one real bummer, I think, when I I think about life after death um, is that I'll only know if there is and I'll never know if there isn't because I'll never have the chance to have that question answered, right? Which would be, oh man, it still frustrates me. I'd like at least 10 seconds to just be like, oh, oh, there isn't. Okay. Uh, and then that'd be it. But um, no, I'll only know if <laughs> if there is, I guess. So I've got a 50-50 shot of that question being answered. Anyway, uh, to some people that might sound, especially those of you who are, who are you know, good Christian folk out there, hello, Uh, It might sound like I'm being a bit vague or a bit, uh, have a lack of faith in some kind of way to talk about life after death with such doubt in my voice, but I guess I am wary of trying to be certain about something that I just simply cannot be certain about. And I'm also aware that people's very fixed ideas sometimes have been a part of the problem and a part of what has created conflict among us. Anyway, having said all of that, there are lots of reasons why I hope there is something beyond this life here and now. But I certainly don't want to use that as an excuse for not giving enough importance to what is happening in the present. Uh, And I think that even when the Christian scriptures themselves talk about life after death, they do so repeatedly in order to talk about life here and now. Uh, Maybe we'll touch a bit more on that in the next episode. But what I'm going to do from this point in this particular episode is I'm going to take the basic assumption of Christianity that there is life after death. Uh, Even though, you know, I can't prove that to you, no amount of uh, science-y experiments, no amount of uh, religiously um, passionate claims, uh, none of that will be able to prove to you in any kind of way that there is. But I'm going to assume it for the purpose of this conversation so that we can talk about three general ways that Christians talk about what happens after death, especially in relation to those outside of the Christian faith. Um, because that's, I guess, where the rubber hits the road in this conversation. So I want to look at the logic and in particular the way Christians often talk about hell as some kind of eternal destination and see what we might do with that uh, based on the flow and of the Christian scriptures and what I think is going on there and a bit of theological reflection in light of the story of Jesus. So, this is episode 11 of In the Shift. Let's get into it. Okay, so this is our second episode in the uh, What the Hell little trilogy we're doing. And, uh, and I want to start with this. I mentioned in the last episode that when Jesus uses the word hell, uh, he's not just talking about eternal destination. But that does not mean that the New Testament scriptures do not talk about some kind of life after death at some point, and some kind of eternal consequence, some kind of judgment. It's just that they don't use the language of hell in particular to do this, which might seem odd to you if you're not familiar with that. 
Um, But one of the reasons that the authors of Scripture point towards some kind of consequence, some kind of um, judgment, is the belief that what we do matters, right? That somehow there are consequences for the actions of humankind. Uh, And in some ways, at its best, I guess, what this serves to do is to limit the possibility of violence, right? Because although one response to the idea that there's no life after death uh, might just be be to enjoy and savour the present, uh, and that might be a wonderful way to live in light of that. Another response might be to take advantage of that reality that maybe there's nothing after this, to manipulate and to impress, oppress and to inflict violence on others for your own gain because there's no ultimate ramifications for your actions. Uh, And then conversely, uh, again, if there are no eternal ramifications, then I might be tempted to take up violent retribution upon myself to ensure that my enemies get what should be coming to them. Uh, And so you can end up in these spirals of violence. And so you can see why these ideas of some kind of eternal consequence have actually played an important role in the ethics and behaviours of people throughout human history. In some kind of way, limiting the violence by uh, putting that responsibility back onto God to carry out in the next life in some kind of way. Now, you can see how that kind of functions for an ancient community and even perhaps for people now. But at the same time, if God's then going to be the one who punishes people forever, and if our notions of that kind of eternal consequence involve this eternal suffering for those people that God uh, judges, um, our tendency is to assume that God's going to do that to all of those people who are not in my religion, who are not like me. And then in some ways, all we've done is push the problem onto God, and then it's God who in the end is the one who ultimately becomes problematic because God is the one who carries out this violence. So then what does that say about God? And then what does that say start to do to the ethics and the attitudes of those who believe in this kind of God? So although from one perspective, it's, an, it's, a, it's an, a way to negotiate uh, the limitation of us carrying out violence against one another by saying, hey, there's eternal consequence to the way that we live. Uh, ultimately then, if the theology that we hold places a whole lot of violence in the hands of God, then in the longer term, once again, uh, we begin to manipulate and utilize that story to justify our own actions in the world. Uh, so Queen Mary I, back in the 16th century, has this, you know, uh, this quote where she says, As the souls of heretics are hereafter to be eternally burning in hell, there can be nothing more proper than for me to imitate the divine vengeance by burning them on earth. Right, which is not a message you want to put on a Christmas card. Um, But what you can see here is the very real consequence of somebody believing, look, if the people who I've judged to be out of the camp are going to be, you know, suffering forever because that's what God wants to do to them, then, well, I'm I'm just going to start early. I'm going to participate in that way of being too. And you can see the logic that flows from that. And although it might not always come out quite so explicitly, as it does here with Queen Mary I, it comes out also in lots of other subtle ways, sometimes in simply just our seeing of uh, those outside of the Christian tradition in particular as an enemy of some kind. And so you hear a lot of the language uh, within the churches of the world, um, of other religious um, beliefs and people groups spoken about in some kind of way as the enemy against whom we're working and, you know, that kind of language spills out of this way of, of, of seeing things. So if the idea of eternal consequence is in some way designed 
or developed to limit violence, well then the traditional doctrine of hell doesn't end up doing the job very well, at least as many Christians have understood it. So what do we do with this then? Well, I want to make a few observations and and comments uh, in this episode. Firstly, let's be reminded that the idea of salvation that is spoken about by Jesus is not about a magical prayer that gets you into heaven. It puts you on the good list so that you get into the good place. It's supposed to be about this notion of liberation. Uh, in particular, it's, it's, it's a language used, in fact, throughout the biblical story to talk about liberation from oppression and the transformation of one's life. And it's this challenge then also, in light of that liberation, uh, challenge and invitation into a different way of being in the world, a commitment to participate in the ways of love and of compassion and of forgiveness and of inclusion. Uh, and so that means I don't any longer want to participate in the ways of being that are filled with hatred and violence and all of the stuff that is shaped by those ideas. That's in large part what salvation language is supposed to be about, not, oh, I prayed this prayer and so now I get to go to heaven instead of hell when I die. Um, But then one of the things the Christian scriptures are sometimes speculating about is what happens if there is life after death? But people don't still don't turn away from that stuff. What if people don't choose to stop embracing what we might have phrased last week as the way of hell? What happens for people who are committed to a path of violence and of uh, self-centered uh, ego that seeks to dominate and oppress others? What happens then? Can that kind of violence and hatred find its way into some kind of eternal future of harmony with God on the others? And others on the side on the other side of death, you know what we might typically call heaven, is there space in that kind of future for people committed still to the ways of violence and hatred? And I guess that's one of the big questions of that gives rise to the notion of eternal consequence and eternal judgment. And there are three predominant views within the Christian tradition on how God might respond to this particular kind of challenge. Um, now, now, I'm going to make some broad generalizations throughout this conversation for sake of time and perhaps for clarity, um, but let's see how we go. There are certainly different versions of this. There are some who, you know, turn Christianity very much into a, into a very strong in or out. You're either saved by Jesus and you're going to heaven or you're not a Christian and you're destined for hell. Others perhaps have more... Uh, room for grey area in there. But broadly speaking, these categories I'm about to talk about still roughly describe the primary beliefs of Christians within uh, the church tradition. So three particular views I want to talk about and we'll see where that gets us. All right. So the first is what's often called, uh, with a lovely little phrase, eternal conscious torment. So if you read theology books about this topic, that's a phrase you'll bump into quite a lot. Uh, it's it's as horrendous as the title suggests. And this is the idea that people who maybe are not Christian, so they haven't been, in Christian terms, saved uh, because they've turned to Jesus. Or maybe, you know, for, for those who are a bit more generous, those people who have... Um, maybe those people who have, whatever already, for whatever reason, been judged to be... Uh, not redeemable, (laughs) are sent to some kind of everlasting but conscious tormented existence uh, that goes forever and ever. That's that's this primary belief. And that you'd say probably still at the popular level in many churches, 
this is the ground level kind of basic assumption of many Christian believers that those outside of Christianity or outside of whoever's God has judged to be uh, deserving of this are sent to some kind of everlasting but conscious existence in which they experience some kind of ongoing suffering. Um, now, there are some that believe this is literally a fiery kind of hell, you know, this consuming fire where people experience this ongoing reality. And so a lot of the popular imagery spins out of that. Um but a lot of this is largely based in a terrible reading of some of those Gehenna texts that we talked about in the last episode, uh, and just in a in a really bad usage of ancient religious imagery that's going on in, in the New Testament. Uh, and then some spurious interpretations of that throughout the history of the church that are then read back into those texts. Um so there are some who have this kind of very literal fire kind of mentality. Then there are a lot, I think, probably more, who think that, that that's just a metaphor or a symbol of some kind for some kind of eternal separation, some kind of eternal existence, which includes separation from God. But because God is the source of all goodness, of all love, of all relationships, um, of all life and so on, then external experience of separation from God means an eternal experience of some kind of darkness and suffering. So that's pretty heavy, right? Uh, and to believe that essentially Christianity is about trying to get people to turn to Jesus so that they don't experience that, which if that's the fundamental belief you hold, makes a lot of sense. If you believe that's what's going to happen to the majority of people unless they find Jesus, well then, yeah, I, I, you'd want to be like what I was when I was a youngster at, at primary school and try and convert as many people as possible as fast as you can. Having said that, there are a number of challenges, and we mentioned a few of these in the last episode, uh, and so I don't necessarily want to rehash that whole conversation. But firstly, just from a textual perspective, I don't think it's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about uh, Gehenna or the Valley of Hanom, which is often translated as hell in our English text. Uh, so we talked about that last time. But um, secondly, and, and for me this is a big part of the challenge here, I don't think it matches the kind of message and behavior we actually see in the life of Jesus. For example, uh, Jesus is uh, famous for many things. <laughs> One of the things he was famous for and which was very upsetting to some of the religious uh, folk around him was the offering of forgiveness to people without requiring anything from them at all. So, you know, in the, in the particular religious cultic system at the time, there were all sorts of processes that you would go through in order to receive forgiveness from God uh, that was mediated by the priests, mediated by the temple practices, um, mediated by the religious system. And yet uh, Jesus, as this figure, would walk around uh, preaching these uh, wise words and then declaring just to people uh, without them even asking for it sometimes uh, that their sins had been forgiven. Now, sin's another whole issue that perhaps we've not got time to dig into today. But uh, at the very least, what we see here is this kind of radical forgiveness that shapes the ministry of Jesus. Um, at one point, there's a man who's, uh, you know, disabled. He he is he is um, paralyzed, and they bring him into a meeting with Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, um, your sins are forgiven. 
And then the healing that takes place, this kind of spectacular uh, turn in the story, is really done by Jesus as a, as a, as a second, secondary uh, expression to prove to the people that he could, in fact, forgive sins like that. Uh, and then what he had done was okay. Because everybody was like, how can you just do that? Uh, and in fact, we see this shape, the way in which Jesus interacts with people all the time. Even when he is being executed because he has done things like what we just talked about, disrupted the religious authorities and their system and disrupted in the longer term the political authorities and their stability as well. Uh, his prayer as he's being executed is that God would forgive those who are killing him because they don't really know what they're doing. Uh, so this is what shapes the attitude of Jesus. So if eternal conscious torment is the way it goes for everybody who's not a Christian, then essentially Christians are doing this. They're following a Jesus who says that we are to forgive over and over and over again. Right? At one point, one of his followers comes up and says, how often should we forgive? And Jesus basically answers to say, you should continue to forgive. Now, just as an aside, that's not saying you should continue to suffer under, suffer violence under somebody and continue forgiving them and putting yourself back through that. That's it's not what we're saying here, but there is this notion of a forgiveness that's offered maybe to somebody who has uh, disappointed you, offended you, uh, misbehaved in some kind of way, a, recogni a recognition that we are to cultivate forgiveness repeatedly in our lives and somehow that is one of the paths into the fullness of life for us. And so we follow this Jesus, but then at the same time supposed to believe in a God who doesn't do that. Or at least not once you die. Maybe God's really good at forgiving you now. But once you die, that's it. No matter how much you regret anything you've done, it's too late. You're out of the club and you're going to suffer forever and ever. Now, to me, that seems like um, cognitive dissonance. We follow a Jesus who says, forgive follow a Jesus who practices forgiveness in every way we, we can observe. Uh, and then we then hold on to this belief that says, uh, but God ultimately does not operate that way. Um, now, I'm not telling you what to think here, of course. Far be it from me to tell you what to think. But I am telling you what I think um, and offering you my thoughts, right? And in my opinion, I think there's actually very little biblical support for this view. Uh, most of the readings of scripture that support this kind of eternal torment already have the idea in their head from the later Christian tradition and then read it back into these biblical texts. And sometimes that's easy to do because we read the religious imagery and instead of trying to get our heads into how was that religious imagery being used in the first century, we just read it now based on a whole lot of assumptions that we've already made and decide we know what it's talking about. But the more you dig into what's actually going on here in the story of the emergence of Christianity, the person of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, uh, the less tenable I think it becomes to hold to this idea that eternal torment for those who are judged by God um, is, a, is a reasonable or even biblical point of view to hold. And it's got a bizarre logic that I think is pretty inconsistent and, to be honest, quite awful. Because if that's what God is like, then God turns out to be some kind of monster, really, who punishes people with an extraordinary level of malice and a resolute lack of forgiveness. 
for there to be no opportunity to 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 be changed, to be transformed, to turn back from that path and to suffer forever for the consequences of the decisions that you made here on earth that were shaped by so many other additional factors in your life. Well, to me, that just that doesn't make any sense in relation to the, the kind of life that we see in, in, the, in the person of Jesus uh, or in the idea of a God who is good, if good actually means anything. Uh, so, as I said, I'm not telling you what to think. That's not my job. But personally, <laughs> I don't think this is a legitimate Christian position, even though it's probably the majority Christian position. I don't think it is um, consistent with uh, what Christians claim about God and about Jesus. All right, there we go. I said it. So, uh, to be honest, I think, like we said last week, this is a view of God that's much more like the ancient god Molech, the one whom people offered human and child sacrifices to in the flames. Uh, it's much more like that kind of God than it is the kind of thing we see embodied in the Jesus story. Okay, so look, eternal conscious torment is, for whatever reason, has developed in the church as the primary way many people think about what happens to people when they die if they are, for whatever reason, outside of salvation in Jesus. And I think that's a problem. And maybe we'll talk a bit more next time about the implications of this, but I think you can probably already start to see them. So secondly, what's the second option then? If one of the primary ways people talk about it is eternal conscious torment, then the second is uh, perhaps more popular now with theologians and is slowly filtering through to some more ground-level Christian uh, believers. And that's sometimes called conditional immortality or sometimes called annihilation. Annihilation is not a very pleasant term, so let's go with conditional immortality. Uh, this is the basic uh, logic of conditional immortality. And this is the, the idea that people's souls are inherently immortal. You know, this, uh, this idea of um, eternal, everlasting existence. Well, this is a, this is a Greek idea that actually um, is imported into the Christian conversation. And so people who hold to this particular point of view, especially amongst the theological community, say, well, look, human beings aren't guaranteed eternal life. Eternal life is a gift that is given to those who follow Jesus. And so uh, essentially then the consequence of being outside of relationship with God, however that is judged to be, is that you do not receive the gift of eternal life, which means that in, in the end you cease to be. You, you die and you stay dead. So they would read a text like uh, the very famous Christian text of John 3.16, which is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, uh, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So they hear that text and they say, yes, that's the choice, everlasting life or perishing. And for them, perishing is literally perishing. So in many respects, what they're trying to do here is strip away the assumption that all human beings have everlasting or eternal existence, uh, but claim instead that that everlasting or eternal existence is a gift only given to those who are faithful to God or who follow Jesus, or perhaps God has decided can be in anyway. However, God does the judging business. So in many respects, this is an attempt, I think, to find a moderating position, right? The logic 
is that if people want to reject the way of love and grace, the way of God, then God simply refuses them the gift of everlasting life and they cease to exist. So the consequence in many respects for their actions here is the um, withholding of the gift of eternal or everlasting life. And I think it's probably true that this theological framework feels a lot better than the eternal torment theology because you don't have this extraordinarily long-term commitment on the on behalf of God to making people suffer forever, which seems so inordinately um, out of uh, scope, out of um, relationship to uh, to the years we spend here on this earth, no matter what we do when we're here, the idea of eternal, everlasting suffering seems uh, well over the top, horrendous. And so I think this position is an attempt to to back off that somewhat and to say, no, God does not actively cause people to suffer, but simply withholds the gift of life from them, that, that, that all life comes from God, uh, that all life comes from the breath of God. And so for those who are committed to... Uh, to not follow God in some kind of way, um, that gift of God of life uh, is, is withdrawn. And so that's why they, it's often called conditional immortality. Your immortality is conditional upon your response to God in some kind of way. Um, right. So as I said, there's actually probably a, there's a stronger biblical argument for this point of view than there is the first, in my opinion. And so you've got a lot of theologians starting to lean in this direction. Certainly in the academic world, that's happening. Um, and I think it does feel a lot better than the idea of eternal torment. <laughs> but you still do have a Christian faith that's turned into an in-and-out kind of theological framework. Uh, who gets to be saved and get everlasting life and who doesn't is largely dependent on, really, on your good fortune of having heard the story of Jesus, for starters. Then having heard the story of Jesus from someone trustworthy, who you were open to, who then explained it really well <laughs> uh, and embodied it really well, and that your life circumstances have collided and combined in such a way that you at that time can actually be open and receptive to that message so that you have a free and clear choice about what you are to do. Will you follow God or not? Um, but in reality, that's not a good assessment of people's genuine experience. Um not to mention the fact that it still, I think, turns Christian faith into, no matter how much people want to say, oh, yeah, but it's not about the future. Ultimately, if that's the outcome, then really Christian faith is about securing your ticket to eternal life. Of course it is. That's the natural implication. And again, the problem I have with that, uh, and you obviously see I have problems with things, uh, but the problem I have with that is that I don't see that being the central thrust of the message of the New Testament. And I feel like, if everlasting life is on the line here, then that would be the first thing that you would talk about whenever you uh, go to talk about your faith with somebody else. And yet, as we'll see, um, this is not the first thing that people talk about. In fact, it's not something that's talked about very often at all, except sometimes in these little um, asides in, in letters that are being written to various churches. Um, all right. And... And if Christianity becomes about securing your ticket to heaven, well, then the implication ultimately is that's the most important thing. That's the thing that drives everything else. All right, so I want to offer the third view and um, see what we do with that. So, so far what we've got is we've got people who say, yes, those who are considered, 
However God makes this decision, those who are considered to be outside of salvation when they die are going to suffer forever and ever. That's the eternal conscious torment crew. Um, then we've got the second crew, which are, well, however God decides who those people are who are outside of salvation, they will cease to be after death. And so life after death is simply a gift given to those who are considered to be in. All right, and then there's the third crew, which you'd probably say has largely been the uh, the minor voice in the Christian tradition, but it's certainly been a presence in the Christian tradition all the way through from the early church fathers until now. Uh, and that is the idea of some form of universalism. And universalism is really the claim, or, or at least the hope, that somehow God will reconcile all people in the end. So again, all of this is based on the assumption that there is the possibility of some kind of life after death. Um, now, in fact, if you look at the book of Acts, for example, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, well then... Essentially what happens in the New Testament is you have these four Gospels which tell the story of Jesus. And then you have the book of Acts, which is after Jesus has um, come and gone. You then have the followers of Jesus who gather around and begin to form what becomes known as the church. And so in the book of Acts, you have uh, a series of descriptions of what happens as the, the gospel of Jesus as it's put um, which in some way is it's quite a political term because there was the gospel of Rome and the gospel of Caesar, but they were talking about the gospel of Jesus. Uh, as this begins to spread out into the world, you get these a- accounts of people trying to explain and articulate uh, why they had become followers of this Jesus person and why they thought others should also. Uh, so that's traced, if you look, uh, at least part of what's going on in the book of Acts. And... Uh, and the curious thing in all of this is that some kind of everlasting torment in hell is not mentioned once in that text. Um, we've got Peter's, uh, who was one of Jesus' disciples, his famous first speech uh, that was held on the day of Pentecost um, in Acts chapter 2, where he, um, this is the real first post-Jesus um, declaring the message of Christianity and being threatened with hell isn't mentioned once. But I kind of feel like, well, if that was the th- if that was the point, if like, if they were all like, yes, okay, we're following Jesus because Jesus is the way to have everlasting life in heaven and not suffer forever, then that's one of the first things you would talk about when you started to talk about the story. Uh, but not only is it not the first thing they talk about, it's, Peter doesn't mention it at all. Um, Peter's speech, he. The one thing he pleads with them to save themselves from is this corrupt generation, not from some kind of eternal torment. He's pleading with them to turn from, he's, he's again, he's imaging Jesus' kind of language here of what kind of person do you want to be in the world? Um, please save yourselves from the corruption of this generation that is taking us down a path that's ultimately going to lead to our own destruction, our own pain, violence. Um, Then we have Stephen's speech, one of the famous speeches in the book of Acts. Stephen uh, is a follower of Jesus uh, who ends up getting um, stoned by a bunch of religious folk because of his claim that Jesus, in fact, was uh, the one that they had been looking for. And he 
he, he throws a bit of shade on some of the Jewish establishment at that time. And he's stoned to death there. But he doesn't talk about it either in his big proclamation of the story. Uh, we've got Paul's attempts. Recount that Paul becomes uh, a later. Paul is one of the people who's initially involved in the stoning of Stephen as a religious um, man, but later on has this transformative mystical experience wherein he decides, oh no, I'm actually going to live this this Jesus way now. And he becomes one of the, the main authors of the New Testament. Uh, and and he goes about trying to um, communicate this story of Jesus to people in a variety of places and uh, and at times try and convince them to become Christians of some sort. Um, but he never threatens people with hell in any of his talks either. So surely one can at least admit from looking at that kind of passage, that kind of text, that the main motivation for, for, for excuse me, the main motivation for convincing people to be Christian in the New Testament is not for them to avoid burning forever in hell, but so they can some way experience the life of God and and living in a, this Jesus way of being in the world here in the present. So that's one thing to say about this. Um, especially in relation to this notion that perhaps there is some kind of universal reconciliation where, yeah, again, assuming there is life after death, that God finds some way to reconcile all people with one another and with God. Um, now, this doesn't um, avoid the notion of some kind of eternal consequence because there is this need for reconciliation. There is this need for things to be worked out, to be worked through, um, but we must keep coming back to the question, I think, does, does do we hold God to a lower ethical standard than we actually hold each other? If God asks us to forgive and to reconcile, why is God not able to do the same? Um, now, we read, actually, there's a passage, the story of Jesus in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, in chapter 25, where it's titled The Sheep and the Goats. It's, uh, it's one of those texts that can be a bit confronting to read because in it, uh, the message of Jesus in this particular text is uh, that our ministry to one another or our service of one another, especially to those who are hungry, to those who are thirsty, to those who are poor and naked or in prison, uh, when we commit ourselves to serving those people, then somehow we are serving uh, God. And that if we neglect those people, if we abuse those people, if we avoid that kind of service, then ultimately we will find there's a consequence for that kind of way of being in the world. It's a very confronting passage for uh, our tendency to uh, neglect the people in need who are around us. And at the end of that text, it talks about those who have neglected the poor and the suffering as being uh, sent to some kind of eternal punishment. Now, when we read eternal punishment, we're like, right, well, that's that's eternal torment, isn't it? Surely that's being punished forever and ever. But there's a couple of things to note about that kind of text. Firstly, the eternal is is a is a bad or at least a very inaccurate translation of the original uh, term that's being used there in first century Greek language. Um, it really means an undetermined length of time, and so. 
There's that ambiguity sitting there in the text. Secondly, the word punishment that Jesus particularly uses in this passage is the word used again because this this text was originally written in first century Greek uh, and Koine. Um, the word here used for punishment is the word the Greeks used for restorative justice rather than retributive justice. In other words, if Jesus wanted to use the word for some kind of irredeemable ongoing punishment that had no redemption to it, he could have chosen a different word to do so. Those words were available to him. But instead, the words he chooses to use here are the words for punishment that are used in first century Greek language to talk about the kind of punishment that is a part of a restorative process. And so it's my opinion, again, take it or leave it, uh, that what is being talked about here is some kind of restorative process that might rehabilitate and reconcile those who have participated in oppression of the poor and the outcast. So universalism, the logic of universalism essentially says this. Ultimately, Christianity is not about securing your ticket to heaven. It is about... uh, following the Jesus way of being in the world because that is the way to undo, or that is this this primary way uh, to undo violence and manipulation and oppression and the way in which we dehumanize and objectify one another. Uh, we are invited to live differently in the world, to treat people differently with compassion and grace and generosity and in order to do so, to allow ourselves to be transformed in some kind of mystical way in our spiritual practice. Um, But that, that ultimately, this is not about just trying to get into heaven and avoid hell. This is actually about participating in this way of being in the world. And then if there is this life after death experience, that God ultimately will find a way to reconcile and draw all things together. Uh, and that for those who seek to live beautifully in the world, they get to be a part of that process much earlier, if you like, than those who are committed to the paths of violence and manipulation. So what can we say for sure, I guess, at this point? Well, firstly, I think we can say that hell is real as a present reality. You don't even need to be a Christian to to be able to use that language, right? To acknowledge that the imagery of hell is a potent way of talking about uh, the experience of some people here and now. And we use that language. Whether you're religious, not religious, Christian or not Christian, people will be talking about going through hell, uh, hell on earth. You know, this is this is the kind of language we use to describe sometimes what our experience of life is like. And also sometimes to describe the suffering that is inflicted upon people by others. Uh, and perhaps it's language that we can use to talk about the self-destructive consequences of violence and oppression, that when we take up the sword in ancient speak or when we take up weapons and violence, ultimately that becomes our ends. So that's one thing we can say. And then secondly, the Christian faith is about seeking to follow Jesus. Uh, that's what sits at the core of Christianity. Um, and this following of Jesus is a means to becoming the kind of person who wants to wa- embrace a way of being in the world that is interested in helping rescue people from that kind of hellish reality that we were just speaking about, that is interested in the transformation of ourselves and of one another and of the life and the world that we live in so that it might be more beautiful, that it might enable the flourishing of more human lives. So we can say those couple of things 
for sure, I think. And then if there is some kind of eternal future, if there is some kind of life after death, then it must be shaped by a God who is love and the kind of love that reaches even into the depths of death. And I kind of, I kind of think that's a big part of what's going on in the Jesus story and what's symbolized there. The hope of all Christians should be that God will ultimately reconcile all things in heaven and earth in Christ. And in fact, this is what many of the New Testament authors looked for and hoped for. At one stage, Paul, again, going back to Paul, writes in a letter uh, to this church that, that are in a particular city called Colossae, uh, that through Jesus, this is what he says, God was reconciling all things, making peace with all things, whether in heaven or on earth. And that's the vision, in my mind, of the New Testament texts. So, that might seem like a lot to take in. But essentially, if you think about, as it, this, is our, this is our little summary. Let's do a little summary, guys. Uh, essentially, there are three main views held within the Christian tradition about uh, what it means to have eternal consequences with life after death. One is that people will suffer forever and ever. Um, and I think that's unhelpful and wrong for all sorts of reasons. And we'll talk a bit more about the implications of this next time. Uh, or secondly, that people judged to be outside of salvation, however that decision is made, uh, cease to be or cease to exist in some kind of way. And the third is what I hope for. And I would think that all Christians who are encouraged to love even their enemies in the way of Jesus would hope for this also, which is that God would reconcile all things. Uh, even those who are as committed to violence as... Uh, we see in our world right now, somehow God would find a way to make all things right in their time. So that's where I tend to land, as you can probably tell by the shape of my argument and conversation. Um, but I'm interested to know how this makes you feel, what you think about all of that. Uh, sometimes when I talk about this uh, in particular groups, people are like, but then what's the point of being a Christian? Um, but... I've tried to address that as I go along because I still think there is much point in being a Christian. Otherwise, I guess I wouldn't be one anymore. Now, some people might say, no, let's not get into that. Let's not, not get into what some people might say about me. Um, but that's, that's what I want to say for this episode. In the next episode, I want to draw out a little bit more of how we might respond to uh, to this, what comes up for us in this kind of conversation, uh, what does this mean for what it means to be a Christian in the world, and um, or simply actually what does it mean to live in the world. Uh, this might not even be just a specifically Christian conversation. In fact, one of the things I think is that this has universal um, meaning. Uh, and what does it mean for how we are to live here and now and how does it shape our current reality? So that's where we're heading next time as we wrap up our What the Hell trilogy on In the Shift.